1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, Matt Costa, and science advisor Matt Moniz are along. We have an extremely special show for you tonight. I cannot stress how vital the information we're going to present to you is if you're still trying to make up your mind about whether or not the phenomenon of UFOs are real, because we are going to talk to Peter Robbins, who has done a vast amount of research on the subject, and with the things that are going to be presented to you tonight, you know, we almost dare you to question whether or not it's legitimate. Uh, we, will, we will actually question whether or not it's legitimate later on in the program with some reports that uh, have come out about... Uh, you know, some of the things that he's researched specifically, but we also are going to present to you some audio evidence as well about the case. So, you know, Matt, I know that you, uh, Matt Moniz, I know that you um, took exception with some of the uh, things that we talked about last week with Heidi Hollis, who has a little bit of a, you know, alternative perspective of this phenomenon. And uh, That's fine. <laughs> you know, no, we, we, you know, we have to be understanding of our guests, and we wanted to give the guests the opportunity to present the information, but we've heard a little bit of a backlash from some of our listeners who think that, you know, her theories almost mock the actual science of what has been discovered. And and you actually said that some of her advice is downright dangerous. I mean, why, could you explain that a little bit? Well, the reason why I say dangerous is I've done work with abductees for uh, many, many, many years. I had one friend in particular who was extremely frightened of these events happening to him. He tried everything under the sun in which to protect himself, for lack of a better term, from having these events happen, including turning to God and trying to invoke the name of Christ and, and the like. And it didn't work for him. And it went to the point where he actually committed suicide. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's strange that, uh, you know, there can be these varying theories about, you know, Heidi's theories are that they could very well be the angels and demons that we know uh, from religious dogma to people who say, you know, all you have to do is mention that to an alien and you're going to get them angry. Well, when she says mentioning that name burns her ears, well, anybody that knows the history of aliens, one of the key features is they have no ears. <laughs> well, I mean, we don't need to get into the semantics of the physicals of the greys, but no, tonight we are going to take a, a little bit different approach because uh, one thing that we definitely want to do here on Spooky South Coast is to present every side of every story because if we sat here and only brought to you, you know, evidence that supported what we believed, then that would be... You know, that'd be an agenda, and that's not what we're trying to have here. We want to present all the information now if we can present it and then discredit it, you know, or if we can present it and then present an opposing viewpoint. Right. She has the right to exactly. state that's, her mind. I have no problem with that, that, and I can't say I can completely disprove everything she's saying. So, Heidi, if you're listening, don't take any offense, but tonight we're going to go to the opposite spectrum with our guest, Peter Robbins. And one thing that we do want to do now early is throw out the phone numbers because, you know, Peter does not do a lot of interviews. In, in no, Hawaiian. very rarely. And so this is your, your chance to talk to him. If you're familiar with the UFO field and you have these questions, you know, this is your chance, 508 996 500 
508-291-0500. We're also going to have those numbers up on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, all night long. We have the message board up and running. The live room is open. If you want to log in, join up, you can go into that live chat room. Maybe you don't want to call in. Maybe you don't feel comfortable calling in with a question. Just shoot it up on that message board. We'll get it, and we'll present it to Peter. And, you know, it's a really good interactive way for those who some people just still don't feel comfortable calling in and talking on the radio about the paranormal. But, of course, we're here to believe you. We're not here to judge you. We're, we're your voice. Exactly. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, we're not here for comedy purposes. We're not here to, you know, to crack well, up. And, and, well, uh, well, I mean, we like to incorporate that stuff, but we're not here to judge anybody. We really want to get this stuff out there, get this information out there, and, and we want people to be able to make up their own mind. So. All right. Um, we're going to be dealing with the Bentwaters case. Now, in early 1981, well, it's actually 1980, Christmas time going right into 81. On a set of consecutive nights, a UFO was seen over a dual airbase run both by the United States and by the UK government. United States running Bentwaters, the English running uh, Woodbridge. Uh, there was a UFO that encroached over the area of weapons storage. And I'll let Peter go into the significance mm-hmm. of that. But it's very, uh, it, it is very it, significant. It's very significant uh, that an aircraft in, you know, incurring over this area is not a good place for it to be. <laughs> um, and it then landed outside the base. A series of MPs went out, or SPs as they are in the uh, Air Force, and came upon a craft or of some form of construction that they were able to touch, feel, and whatever, and uh, it departed, returned again the following evening doing the same thing. Different set of uh, SPs went out, and uh, there was a whole host of things that happened. Now, this object was viewed by no less than 20 different people, 20 different airmen from various angles, and was even recorded by the Deputy Base Commander uh, Holt, Colonel, Colonel, Colonel Charles, Charles Holt. Holt. He made an audio tape of his events, of what he saw while he was tracking one of these objects. Now, what's interesting to note is is more than one object on each of these nights mm-hmm. that were visible, and uh, but one of them on each night took it upon himself to land. <laughs> and uh, we actually have Colonel Holt's audio tape for you. Uh, this is, uh, you know, one of those things that's uh, in the public domain. I mean, it's out there. If yes. you want to find it, it's out there. It's on the internet. We have a link to it on our site, SpookySouthCoast.com. But for those of you that don't have access to a computer, we want to present to you this audio evidence. Now, it's about 17 and a half minutes long. And in the interest of, of science and getting all the evidence out there, we want to play the entire file for you. Because if we just jump in and play, you know, the, the second half of the clip where you, it really starts to intensify, it's going to sound like a hoax. Well, uh, people should also know it's 17 minutes total length. But yes. The total encounter lasted over a couple of hours. Yes. So the, you, what you're getting is the points where uh, Halt turned on and off making comments on 17 minutes worth. Mm-hmm. It's not like the event just happened for 17 it's, minutes. It's it kind happened. of like a time lapse type thing where right. it takes the, the key information. So. It takes all the salient points that he was looking at, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, like I said, it's 17 and a half minutes of audio. At points, it may be a little bit difficult to hear, but uh, believe me, this you have to hear this if you want to make up your mind or, or if you're interested in, in UFOs and 
because this is some incredible evidence. So we're going to play the entire 17 and a half minutes for you. When we come back on the other side, we will have Peter Robbins to discuss this case. We will take your calls at 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, or your questions from the live room on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. So settle down, get ready, and, and be prepared to hear some things that you've probably never heard before.
back at the same first corner where we came in. Let's go right back here. So I'm going to depend upon you kind of clicks. Right. Okay, let's do it. Yes, it gets louder. Then I can put the light on it and sweep around it. Up 
That's right. We're taking a sample now. Four. That's the strongest play on the tree? Yes, sir. If you come to the back, there's no clicks whatsoever. No clicks at all on the back. It's all on the Maybe side one, facing the... Interesting. The indentations look like something twisted as it got, you know, as it sat down on them. Looks like someone took something and sat it down and twisted it from side to side. Mm -hmm. Very strange. Well, it's the same tree we took the sample off with this, what do you call it, star scope? Uh -huh. Star yeah, yeah. Getting a definite heat reflection off the tree, about, about three or four feet off the ground? Yes, where the same spot is. It's same place the size. size. We're getting a heat spot on the tree directly behind us. I picked up the same thing. One off to your right. Uh, look, three trees in the area, immediately adjacent to the site, within 10 feet of the suspected landing site. We're picking up heat reflection off the trees. What's that again? Shine a light on again, Bob. Well, you have a couple of Yeah, keep us in the other spot. And then when you want to put the light on, you'll notice the white. Hey. You're right. There's a lot of white streak on the tree. It indicates. Uh, Let me turn around this tree over here now. Just a second. Watch your shrink on the tree. I can see it. Give me a little side lighting so I can find the tree. Okay, off. Oh, I lost the tree. Okay, stop, stop. Light off. Hey, this is eerie. Sometimes for a or something in the ground with a piney 
on the meter and we're seeing strange lights in the sky. Got two from the floor. We're at the far side of the farmer's, the second farmer's field and late sighting again about 110 degrees. This looks like it's clear off to the coast. It's right on the horizon. Moves about a bit and flashes from time to time. Still steady or red in color. Also, after negative readings in the solar field, we're picking up the slight readings, uh, four or five clicks now on the meter. 305, we see strange uh, strobe-like flashes to the farmer's uh, sporadic, but there's definitely something there, some kind of phenomenal. 305, at about uh, 10 degrees horizon uh, directly north, we've got two strange objects, uh, half moon shape, dancing about with colored lights on them. That uh, gets to be about five to ten miles out, maybe less. The half moons are now turned into full circles. Because I know there was an eclipse or something there for a minute or two. Through the 15, now we've got an object about ten degrees directly south, ten degrees off the horizon. And the ones in the north are moving, one's moving away from us. There you have it. Some very interesting audio evidence of a of, of a UFO in the Rendlesham Forest between the Bentwaters and Woodbridge bases. Correct, Matt Moniz? That is correct. Yeah. And and so it just. I mean, we couldn't have told you about what they saw as well as they could. I mean, you heard a, pretty much a, a real time description of what was going on. They were recording what they were seeing at the time they were seeing it. If you listen to the tape, they are making time statements mm -hmm. uh, on each entry. And as you see, it's over a, an extended period of time. And they're talking about multiple objects, directions, colors, contr controlled type of ascension, descension, and what have you. Now, you've heard this audio evidence. Uh, you can make judgments for yourself. Uh, now, basically, when people wanted to talk about the authenticity of it, I just say, hey, if it's a hoax, it's not going to be 17 and a half minutes long. But now you've heard that evidence. What does this all mean? What, what exactly happened? How can we prove that this happened? How do we know that it's just not some people having fun with us releasing this stuff out there? What does it all mean? Well, we're going to get into all that with our special guest, Peter Robbins, on the other side of this break. So stay tuned here on Spooky South Coast. Very special night talking about the UFO incident at the Bentwaters Woodbridge Air Force bases. Stay tuned. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast here on a very special night. We're focusing on the uh, Bentwaters Woodbridge UFO incident back from 1980. 
in in the UK. We will get into all the information about what you just heard, about what that audio file is all about, with our very special guest, Peter Robbins. He's been involved in UFO studies for 25 years as a researcher, an investigator, a writer, a lecturer, a best-selling author, and in his current capacity as an executive assistant to Bud Hopkins and Truders Foundation. Of course, we've had Bud on the show. Uh, he has spoken on the subject of UFOs for more than 20 years. He has lectured in more than 20 states, Canada and France, and done dozens of talks in the United Kingdom. He's worked with the United Nations. He's worked with the House of Lords and Britain's Parliament, the Scientific Bureau of Investigation as well. He's the co-author, along with Larry Warren, of the British bestseller Left at Eastgate, a first-hand account of the Bentwaters-Woodbridge UFO incident, its cover-up, and the investigation. So our very special guest, welcome to Spooky South Coast, Peter Robbins. I took, did not take him off holding. Peter, are you there? I am. Okay. See now, see what happens when they leave me in charge of the technical side. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's a good thing I wasn't there on that night because I wouldn't <laughs> have been able to make that audio recording like Colonel Halt did. So, um, um, Peter, why don't you explain to everybody exactly? Matt Mooney's gone into it a little bit, but you know, what is it about this case that drew so much interest? I mean, is it the fact that you know so much evidence existed that so many people saw it of? you know, uh, credible sources? Well, that's a great question, Tim. Um, I think the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident case, as it's also known, um, is the preeminent case that we have in UFO studies, in great part because it has some of everything that we look forward, uh, we look for in cases. It definitely involves overflights of things seen, recorded on radar, photographed, uh, it does seem that the abduction phenomena enters into this story as well. There are many highly credible military witnesses and at least as many highly credible local civilian witnesses. Uh, it is an area with a history of high strangeness and UFO sightings. Uh, it's also an area with a very important military history as well. Um, the incident also involves what we call um, aspects of trace case, where um, your associate uh, Matthew Moniz is more than familiar with it. Um, in his capacity as a soil analyst, he did the analysis on the actual soil taken from the site of the appearance of the craft on the third night, the one that my co-author was in, and compared it very carefully to surrounding soil samples in the field. Uh, but again, this case has a little bit of everything, and there was a cover-up moving into place really almost immediately after the incident happened. Um, so it held my attention for more than a decade of working constantly to develop uh, what is now regarded as the best book on the best documented and certainly best known incident of its kind in the history of the United Kingdom. And now why don't we start with how the how the whole situation began. I mean, didn't it basically just start with some anomalies on the radar screen? Um, well, it began, uh, again, the, the entire incident runs across three consecutive nights between Christmas and New Year's in December of 1980. And on the first night, I don't know whether they were first seen on screen. I believe they were, but they were also visually observed coming in over this twin NATO base complex, RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters. Bentwaters now completely decommissioned, uh, are only about six miles apart from each other, and they're separated by a good stretch of the Rendlesham Forest. Uh, 
machines, I don't know what else to call them, they gave solid metallic radar returns, uh, of undetermined origin came in over the weapons storage area. And I should say here that that is the nuclear weapons storage area, which brings up one of the more important subtexts in this whole story, namely that at the time of these incidents, the United States was in a very serious violation of our then treaty obligations with the United Kingdom. Uh, at the time, we were obliged not to have nuclear ordnance in the United Kingdom, and not only did we, it was essentially all being held below this twin base complex, and it comprised something like 350,000 kilotons of nuclear ordnance. Um, again, men saw these things come in over this area. Uh, the machines were fired upon. No hits were recorded. They fired beams of light down to the ground, and being a uh, misty night, one could follow these visual beams with your eye. Um, this is, again, 25 years ago before we had pocket laser pointers, but it must have looked something like an industrial laser pointer, to be sure. Um, on the second night of activities, um, machines definitely came in over the same area of forest and bases again. They were seen maneuvering in a rather uh, organized manner in the skies above, uh, almost uh, the way that helicopters would do a grid search of an area for a downed aircraft. Also, it seems that on that second night, uh, machines came in uh, and touched down in the woods and around the bases. I should also go back and say that on the first night, the most important aspect besides these overflights of the weapons storage area is that a number of law, um, I would say Air Force law enforcement police officers, observed a light go down in the Rendlesham Forest not far from the east gate of RAF Woodbridge. Uh, there was no crash to speak of. There was no explosion of flames, no vibration uh, that would suggest an explosion. But being trained uh, military police, they radioed in for permission to investigate because on a certain visual level it did mimic um, something going down in the woods, uh, likely a small aircraft. Uh, they got into the area, and as they got closer to the area where they were confronted by the thing I'm about to describe, they began to have electrical problems with their Motorola radios and were out of commission for uh, most of the next few hours. There were four law enforcement police officers. And shortly they came upon a machine uh, that's been described to me, and uh, if you saw uh, the Sci-Fi Channel documentary, uh, Jim Pennison described it quite well there. It was about a meter, two meters on a side. That's about seven feet on a side. It tapered upwards. It was uh, equilaterally triangle. It had the appearance of, like, black glass. There were letter forms, figures, hieroglyphics, uh, none of those, but what else can we call them? that were discernible on the side of this machine. And it was simply coasting through the woods, nice as you please, at a very leisurely pace at about waist high. The four men came upon it, um, and as Penniston tells us, Sergeant Burroughs, who was one of the men involved, um, drew his service weapon on it. Uh, Burroughs told my co-author, Larry Warren, uh, when they met in England in the early 1990s, that 
impulsively, he had jumped on the thing and had traveled about 30 feet with him on it before he let go. Uh, at this point, memories uh, are not complete, and when they returned from the woods hours later, there were only three of the four men. The fourth was missing for a prolonged period of time, whether or not he was taken or just appropriately kind of freaked out and spent time in the woods. Um, I am not sure, but he did ultimately come back. Again, on the second night, we have touchdowns. We have machines coming down in and around the area. And on the third night, and let's remember here that because this is between Christmas and New Year's, there is a round of parties going on. At the time, uh, whose tape you just heard, Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles I. Halt was approached by uh, a lower-ranking member, um, um, an, an assistant of his, who came up to him at a party and said, they're back. What's back? The UFOs. Right. Uh, Colonel Halt was a skeptic and wanted to show this up, went back to his home on base, changed into appropriate clothing, and took his microcassette recorder with him, not to record a UFO, as he made clear to me when we spoke in person, but to essentially uh, document whatever had been misinterpreted as a UFO. We now know from that segment of tape that your listeners have just heard that what they came upon was anything but a hoax or a misunderstood aircraft or something like that. Uh, by the way, that section, that 16- or 17-minute section, from what Mr. Halt says, represents several hours, which he has never released to the public, and I'm sure you're as curious as I as to what's on there. Uh, in any case, he went out into the woods where they were confronted by this machine coming over them. You can hear the anxiety in their voices. However, at the same time, a number of Air Force personnel, primarily security police, among whom was my co-author Larry Warren, had been brought out to an area close by, um, ultimately to a farmer's field, um, not far from the Woodbridge perimeter, and were sent into the field in three-man teams to quote-unquote investigate a disturbance. As they headed into the area, uh, the electrical problems developed for them with their flashlights and their um, two-way radios. And there was such a ferocious static electricity charge in the air that it actually was pushing the berets off of some men's heads. Think about that one for a moment. Wow. And as they came to the point where the forest becomes the field, uh, on English survey maps of Suffolk, it's called Capel Green. It's a privately owned farmer's field. Uh, they could see a glow out in the field. It was um, a ground fog, however, a very anomalous ground fog. It was elliptical or round. It was about 40 feet across. It was self-illuminated. There was no ambient light. Although Larry and his contingent brought out a number of light alls, those are kind of the gas-operated uh, military equivalent of the big Klieg lights that we associate with Hollywood premieres. Um, none of those would kick off, even though they'd all been tested at the base motor pool a short time before. None of them would work. And yet, the ground fog glowed. Um, the men were brought to the area. They were ordered to surround it. And they watched as, over time, a small reddish-colored light came drifting in from the direction of the North Sea, came in lower, grew larger, 
and came in directly over this ground fog. I can, I think it's fair to say that probably all eyes were on it at that moment when, without a sound, as has been described to me, it exploded with such magnesium brightness that there was just a reflexive averting of the eyes. And when their eyes adjusted, uh, there was a machine sitting now in the ground fog. A number of the men ran off. Most of them held their ground. Uh, granted, they were young, but they were highly trained military specialists, and this was a highly military situation. Uh, from this point, again, they held their uh, marks. They had all had their weapons confiscated, removed, when they pulled into a uh, trucking area about half a mile away where they disembarked their vehicles. So none of them were armed, which maybe is a good thing. Uh, who knows what might have happened when that thing appeared. Well, exactly, yeah. Or what might have happened not long after when Larry, the man next to him, Sergeant Adrian Bastinza, other men uh, on their side, <clears throat> saw a glow beginning to work its way around from the far side of this craft and ultimately make itself plainly visible to them. There were three distinct glows within that glow, and as the light subsided, Larry's reaction, chalk it off to a protective nature or a momentary kind of shock, was, what are children doing out here? This is a military situation, and within a matter of moments, realizing these were not children. Uh, they were three beings. I would not call them human, but they were humanoid. They had heads, you know, appendages, uh, torso, um, were not like a gray alien as depicted in so many fictional kind of things, although it is a report that we get fairly consistently. These were much stockier. And um, they seemed to be in one-piece kind of tight-fitting suits. And to make it just ever so slightly weirder, they were about a foot off the ground and slightly translucent. Again, they were all clearly visible, even though there was no moon, no ambient light, and no artificial light brought out to the area. Um, this went on, and at a certain point, a ranking officer, who we are convinced is uh, the then deputy, I'm sorry, the then uh, base wing commander, um, Colonel Gordon Williams, who went on to become a two-star general before retiring and going into the aerospace industry, he steps into this circle of men through this cordon. He is in evening clothes, having just come from a party and is likewise unarmed, and he faces off with these three beings. Well, I mean, you're looking at a, a situation where you're combining first contact with what's essentially an invasion of a nuclear weapons facility. Correct. So, I mean, how, how did they handle that situation? Well, it was potentially the biggest public relations nightmare in Air Force history, I guess. I can imagine. And the other backstory, which... I find fascinating, and it's just um, the kind of thing that you sort of hope for if you're a scrupulous nonfiction investigative writer, because even writing about this stuff it can be dry. Uh, and the backstory is this: besides the nuclear treaty violation, if you were to go back to oh, a big newspaper's records for this week, um, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, you know, uh, take your pick, Washington Post and look at the big story for that last week internationally in December 1980, there was only one. And it was about a situation that was exacerbating in Poland and causing the Soviets great concern, 
which was causing the West great concern, namely that an upstart electrician who was something of an idealist working in the Gdansk shipyards had begun a pro-democracy movement among shipyard workers. It was an unknown name at the time, but most of us know it now. It was Mr. Lech Walesa, who went on to become the first elected president of Poland. And in the papers, yes, we saw that there was concern that the Soviets were concerned um, that if this thing got out of hand, they might have a full-scale revolution on their hands. And this is almost ten years before the Soviet Union begins to disintegrate. And what we did not know at this time, uh, Tim, was that bases like RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge, which were normally uh, fairly dense with, you know, state-of-the-art fighter aircraft, had almost no fighter aircraft on location. They had all already been flown to West Germany to forward operating locations and were sitting on the tarmac waiting for orders. Now, the other thing that wasn't published in the Western newspapers at the time, because it was considered appropriately highly classified, was the Soviets had massed over 100,000 crack troops on the Polish border. And if the Gdansk shipyards went and the democracy movement began to spread into the city and the countryside, the Soviets were going to roll into Poland and quash this upstart revolution and the Americans were then going to roll into the area, too, and something probably called World War III would have begun. The Cold War would have turned to a hot war. It would have, and RAF Bentwaters, RAF Woodbridge, I think it's fair to say every other NATO base uh, was on a full red alert. Red is one step below black, and black is war. So this is the backdrop against which the most extraordinary UFO incident in the history of the United Kingdom transpired. Peter, yeah. you, you left out one item. What? Impossible. It was also the area where they were launching the SR-71s to spy on everybody. Well, that's um, you're right. There are many items to bring up. The SR, as many of us uh, aviation aficionados, even us amateurs know, is possibly the most beautiful terrestrial plane to have ever flown. Um, it was declassified about 10 years ago, allegedly, because we now have something bigger and better in the air, usually referred to as the Aurora, whatever the heck it is. It must be pretty amazing, because the thing that they retired could go close to Mach 3, cruise at more than 120,000 feet, uh, climb at, as I recall, 10,000 feet a minute, uh, make it from uh, London to New York in a little over half an hour, um, pure titanium, essentially a flying fuel tank, no weapons of any kind except possibly a sidearm for the pilot who was NASA-trained, CIA-controlled. And uh, believe it or not, I actually got to watch one of these things completely as a fluke in 1988 on my first research trip over with Larry. We were several miles in the woods and just happened to be on the trajectory of the classified uh runway where they ran these things and the U-2s off of it. It came in over our heads at just a couple of hundred feet. And wow. It was gorgeous and amazing looking, a total jaw dropper. I've never seen 
anything like it. But this base was alive with areas of classification. And well, uh, we're, we're coming up on a news break, Peter. I hate to interrupt you mm. because this is fascinating, but we are coming up on a news break right now. Uh, we will be back on the other side. Uh, we'll do the Week in Weird, uh, which is our little news segment that we do. And uh, but before we take a break, you had mentioned Sergeant Peniston's uh, description, yeah. and we actually have some audio, I believe, uh, from one of the television specials. So we're going to play that for you right now as we head into the news. Sergeant Jim Peniston of the RAF Security uh, describing what happened. So we'll, we will talk to you in a few minutes, Peter. Mm-hmm. I was called at the Chow Hall to uh, go out to the East Gate about uh, 12 o'clock at night, and I uh, proceeded out there. When I arrived there, there was two police units there. Into the uh, wooded area about 300 yards approximately off the uh, east gate. We've seen a, a glowing white light with uh, some yellow and some blue in it. it was, uh, the closer we got, the more intense the bright white light uh, emulated out of it. We got to the edge of the forest and it was bright enough to make the squint. Supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, does it? 
AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Welcome back. Hour number two here of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg, Matt Costa manning the controls, and Matt Moniz, our science advisor, along for the ride. We are talking with Peter Robbins, who is just fascinating us with this tale of uh, the, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident from back in 1980. We're going to get back into that in a few moments. Um, first, we have for you a little thing that we like to call The Week in Weird. This is where we like to bring you some of the stories that you might not have heard on other newscasts. Why do we do it? Well, because we're weird. So we like to bring you the weekend. And our first story comes from right here in good old Massachusetts, Danvers, Massachusetts. According to the Associated Press, in real estate, not even spooky, Trump's location. Across the nation, former state hospitals for the mentally ill are being converted into homes. Even the ominous and famous and infamous Danvers State Hospital, once described as, quote, the scariest building in the world, and anybody that's seen a photo of it even can tell you that that's true, uh, it's the favorite destination of ghost hunting thrill seekers. It'll soon be home to laptop-toting latte drinkers. Uh, they are constructing a 497 luxury apartment and condominium complex uh, in the former state hospital, which opened in ni- 1878 as the State Lunatic Hospital. That's uh, 75 acres of land there that they can use to put a campus-like environment with a swimming pool, Wi-Fi cafe, and a fitness center. Rents will start at about $1,400 for one bedroom per month or a half a million dollars to purchase a condo. Uh, the, the group is paying $18 million for the property, and they already uh, have had to move 150 people for in, in the house, you know, squatters essentially living in the place. Uh, in the past, and 400 people, 450 people for trespassing, you know, ghost hunting and thrill seeking. Yeah. So all those people are going to have to get out of there and make way for the yuppie crowd. Now, uh, the, the strange thing about that is, is they've actually uh, there's actually a cemetery located on the property. That's one of those classic. We talk about it all the times. Move the headstones, left the bodies. There's a lot of unmarked graves in there, and that's going to be in somebody's swimming pool sooner or later. So they're here. Joe, Joe Beth Williams can tell you about that. So uh, Matt Costa, tell us about uh, your story. Right. <clears throat> Mutant sharks trained by military scientists to become killing machines sounds like a scenario in the 2003 film Dark Waters. Now so- it sounds like it was it a good movie? I don't know. Yeah. Sorry, not really. <laughs> okay. Now it emerges that the Pentagon is funding research with the ultimate hope of turning real sharks into stealth spies capable of gliding undetected through the ocean. It involves placing neural implants in the fish to transmit their bidding, their controller's bidding. The research, the research builds on experimental work to control animals by implanting tiny electrodes in their brain, which are stimulated to induce behavioral response. The Pentagon hopes to exploit sharks' natural ability to glide quietly through the water, sense delicate electrical gradients, and follow chemical trails. By remotely guiding the sharks' movements, they hope to transform them into stealth spies, perhaps capable of following vessels without being spotted. The project is being funded by the Pentagon's Advanced Research Projects Agency, and the scientists involved in, in the scheme presented their work last week at a meeting in Ocean Sciences in Hawaii. So, shark spies, huh? I would think they would use dolphins. 
Well, the best thing about using sharks is if you're using a mako, if he doesn't make it, you can always eat them. Well, that's what I was going to say. It might be the most delicious spy ever. Well, I mean, some of those female spies from the James Bond movies might have been. Well, that's that's enough of that. Matt, Matt Moniz, well, what do you have for us? All right. We have a story that comes to us out of England. Amazing film footage of a mysterious light hovering over crop circles in the West Country in Dorchester. Uh, out actually in the area called Alton Barnes in uh, Wilshire was taken by uh, Carrie Baller of um, East Kennet near uh, Marlborough. She was filming the landscape around a crop circle when suddenly a uh, glistening diamond appeared at the top of a tree and moved down to hover over the formation. A second light appeared and waited for two people to pass and then dropped to the crop. It was incredibly exciting, but I was nervous too, Carrie told me, as quoted by her. The way the lights moved seemed intelligent, as if they were looking for something. I can't find any logical explanation of what they are, she also said. It's totally intriguing. Only a few weeks ago, Carrie encountered the same phenomena at nearby Woodboro Hill, uh, but, it didn't, but she didn't have her camcorder with her at that time. Uh, there's a conference being put on by David Kingston of the uh, Tickerill Dorset, who will be speaking at the uh, 2006 crop, about the 2005, sorry, crop circle season, and uh, he happens to have this amazing film, which will be uh, shown on, shown at that convention. Um, it goes on to say that uh, these don't follow the pattern because they seem to be intelligently guided. They will approach a henge, go up and over it. Some appear prior to crop circles forming, others afterwards. The question is, could these lights be connected with the creation of crop circles? Lately, David, who said he had been a lifelong interest in the paranormal UFOs and the unexplained, had been working on Project X with the University of Parapsychology Departments and a worldwide research team investigating such matters. It was in 1957, while serving in the RAF on Christmas Island for Britain's nuclear tests, also in Australia, that David saw his first UFO. With the knowledge I've gained in the military, I've recently started to provide remote viewing courses, which I believe is a skill that should be used for the benefit of peace of mankind and not as a military weapon, he added. Well, you know, a lot of people uh, are jumping on the remote viewing bandwagon almost because it's, it's, it's been a proven effective method. I've been involved in it. You've been involved in it when I'm around, and it freaks me out. <laughs> Sorry. Speaking of freaking people out, uh, Matt's got an interesting story for us. Matt Cost has a story for us about a gentleman who uh, has something. You know, you know, it's 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 yard sale season. Easter's here. It's yard sale season, so you know, you never know what kind of things you're going to find. Uh, it might end up in John Zaffis's paranormal museum. But Matt's got a story about something for sale that you know you might want to just hang on to your money. Tell us about that, Matt. Some might call it an auction to die for, as the Chinese observe their traditional Quinming festival honoring the dead. A man in his late 20s in Jaising, a, a city near Shanghai, has a... I'm a big fan of Jaising's music. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> a city near Shanghai has attempted to sell his soul on Taobao. That little bao Okay, go ahead. Sorry. China's top online auction site, attracting bids from some 58 soul-searching buyers before the posting was pulled. We reviewed Taobao's policy and realized we had no specific policy on the selling of souls, said Porter Arisman, <coughs> spokesman for Taobao. Arisman said we weren't opposed to the idea of selling his soul online, but we wanted 
more proof that the seller could provide the goods. After some discussion, we decided that we would allow the member to sell his soul on Taobao, but only if he could provide written permission from a higher authority. The man was re has reportedly not been able to provide the paperwork for the transfer of ownership of his soul as of yet. And I thought it was hard to sell my Trans Am. Now, does he have to sign it in blood? I don't think so. No, I don't think so, but... You know, it's something that's happened on eBay before here in America. Uh, people have tried to sell their soul, and eBay's taking it down and saying you can't sell something that you can't physically prove was there. You know, people have tried to sell their heart. You can buy my heart, buy my love. You know, and when, you know, sooner or later, somebody's going to pay for it that you're not going to want to pay for it, and they're going to show up to collect. Now, could it be a more subtle method for the devil to collect souls? Hey, he's got the cash. <laughs> All right. Uh, story number two uh, comes from us from the Boston Globe. Mark Jewell, an Associated Press writer, tells us about a new telescope at an observatory outside Boston that will soon become a key tool in the search for extraterrestrials as scientists try to detect light signals from distant civilizations. This is an optical telescope that was dedicated Tuesday at the Oak Ridge Observatory, 35 miles west of Boston, and is the first to be used exclusively for a project called the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI, as it's more commonly known. SETI's been around for 22 years. It's lar largely relied on radio telescopes to search for radio signals from outer space that could indicate the presence of intelligent beings, such as in the movie Contact. Of course, SETI was a major focus of that film. While some scientists are skeptical that such an approach could yield such evidence, the scientists who will use the Oak Ridge Telescope believe extraterrestrials may be just as likely to communicate with high-intensity, tightly-focused light beams as we, Laser. Were, as we were talking about earlier and will be again with Peter Robbins. If I were a betting man, I'd bet radio would work before light, said Paul Horowitz, a Harvard physicist who heads up the SETI project. But we've done that for 20 years, and we haven't explored much with light, so they're going to move into this aspect of it. The new telescope will have a 72-inch mirror, larger than any U.S. telescope east of the Mississippi River. And other features will enable scientists to scan the heavens more than 500 times faster than older telescopes. Uh, it's a bug-eyed monster view of the universe rather than looking through a soda straw, said Mr. Horowitz. And, of course, this is being built for $350,000 by the Planetary Society, a Pasadena-based nonprofit group that supports SETI. Now, the only problem is, is they're worried about the Massachusetts' often cloudy skies will only infrequently yield clear views of space from an Earth-bound observatory. So we will see what happens. It'd be nice if they built this project and then moved it somewhere else. I mean, that figures. It's the way things go in Massachusetts. You know, make it here and ship it out. So that is the Week in Weird. We are going to come back in just a few minutes with our special guest, Peter Robbins. We will talk more about this interesting UFO case from 1980. We want to hear from you. 508-996-0500. 508-291-0500. Be back in about two minutes here on Spooky South Coast. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back.
Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Before we get back in with Peter Robbins, we are going to uh, play one more brief audio clip for you. This is the subject of the book, Left at Eastgate. Well, the, the co-author of it, uh, who, who provided the first-hand account to Peter Robbins. This is Larry Warren, back when he was only 19 years old when this right incident happened. the incident. And uh, he's going to give us a little bit of his perspective. So uh, here, here's that file. I'm standing in Rendlesham Forest, where on December 28th to 29th, 1980, just behind me, Colonel Holt and a group of NCOs and officers had their sighting of events, which is recorded on the tape that he made that night, about a quarter mile that way. My event took place right here, heading toward this farmer's field. I had no idea what was about to happen. No one else with me really did at that time at all, except that this field in front of me was illuminated with some very bright, strange light. I noticed that this giant oak tree here was illuminated as well. That was my first indication that something wasn't right in the field. Out in front of me as we approached, I could see, as I was watching this mist on the ground, there was other Air Force personnel, security police, all throughout this field. Over in the distance, was two uh, cameras, and one was a video camera, one was a motion picture camera, and at the time the video cameras were very bulky technology, but I recognized it for what it was. Everything I saw in the field was documented on film that night, both on still photographs and on motion picture. There's no doubt about it. What I saw, I'll walk to the center of the area where this mist was. Uh, you can see it clearly. Ground zero would be here. After watching this object on the ground, a red ball of light moved in. I thought it was an A-10 taxiing to RAF Woodbridge behind me, about a mile. Came in over that far stand of trees, stopped over the circular fog-like object on the ground, dispersed in an explosion of color that was soundless, heatless, and what happened was a transformation somehow of this mist to a structured object. It was about 30 feet at the base, 20 feet in height, and a bank of blue lights at the base of it, and mother of pearl or rainbow effect all over. It was very difficult to look directly at. The worst thing that happened to me was that when the event transpired, when there was a transformation somehow, some senior people ran off into these woods, into these fields, and left us here. We, and why I didn't run could have been shocked or whatever, but a number of us ran, a number of us just stayed glued. Now, that, was a, that was a voice that was very familiar to our special guest, uh, Mr. Peter Robbins. Uh, that's somebody that he spoke with. That's Larry Warren, the co-author of Left Eastgate. And, uh, and, and Peter, I mean, is that, is that some, something that you've heard? Oh, yes. Uh, I believe that excerpt is from uh, a documentary that was done in 2002 by the Sci-Fi Channel. So Larry is, is not 19. He's referring back, of course, to when he was 18 or 19, though. And, yes, very compelling, very compelling piece of recording, no question. And uh, we actually have a caller on the line who has a question for you. Oh, good. So we're going to bring him up for you. Fine. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Good evening, fellas. How are you? All right. Okay. Good. Mr. Robbins, uh, I look forward to reading your book. I, I have an open mind about this. Uh, you know, I'm, I lean towards more skeptical, but I, I do have an open mind, and I, uh, I, I, I do want to read about it. I, as a kid, I lived on RAF Lake and Heath, which is uh, probably an hour away from uh, 
that area. Sure. When I was there, uh, my father was stationed at Melbourne Hall, where the SS-71 used to take off from, um, and uh, it, it was a very interesting time. I, I was there. 1980, we were living on the base, but I, I just have to wonder um, why the Air Force, because the Air Force was very protective for that area. Um, if any enemy plane or, or, or any any kind of craft that strayed into that area, surely some of the other bases would have scrambled planes to try to intercept it. That, that's that's one of the things I I wonder about. And do you have any comments on that? Yes. Um, number one, certain records. Uh, on deployment of craft, and again, almost all fighter aircraft in this part of England and other NATO bases had already been removed to West Germany in case a conflict broke out there as they thought it might. Also, for the record, and this is now fully acknowledged uh, not just as a matter of research but by Ministry of Defense and more official agencies, uh, records revolving around that night, particularly those of radar checkpoints in the area, military and civilian, uh, radar tapes and logs in some cases were confiscated and never returned or returned uh, with that page missing, so to say. Um, I would imagine that there was full awareness within the base network uh, at some classified level uh, that there were uh, unknowns coming in over this area uh, at the same time with the preoccupation of the possibility of war or conflict looming. I am not sure how widely dispersed this information was. Also, um, you're absolutely right to be suspect about any sensational story like this. Um, I think one of the things I'd like to think that helps make me uh, a fairly ethical and respected researcher and writer in this area is I have to function as a skeptic if I'm caught in uh, some silly nonsensical story or something that proves uh, to not be what I thought it was that I publish around it um, the reputation uh, is going to follow me for the rest of my life um, I thought I'd be going to England once when I first signed on to this uh, and, uh, uh, you know, taking a year or two to write it up. But that's not the way it worked out. It took almost a decade, and I just got back from my 15th investigative trip to the United Kingdom. Uh, it took a great deal of time in some cases to win the trust of civilian and military witnesses and to build our case with physical evidences, witness testimony, uh, historic evidence in terms of military documentation, and ultimately corroboration of individuals like uh, uh, Peter Hill Norton, the former chief of staff of the Ministry of Defense and former admiral of the fleet, who not only confirmed for my co-author and I that indeed we had uncovered a very serious nuclear treaty violation, but in fact that these events had gone down much as claimed and uh, all but the highest-ranking individuals were shut out of it except on a need-to-know basis. But I salute your attitude, and while I do hope you read Left at Eastgate, uh, take nothing at face value. I, I hope that our book will uh, make the case for you, but I, I thank you for your very good question. No, no problem. I just, um, it just seems it's 
it seems so huge the way it's, it's been described. And like, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to get to Amazon.com and in just a moment I'm gonna go order it. But uh, it, it, it just seems such a huge thing to be able to be covered up. Um, well, it does. I mean, the whole UFO phenomena. Uh, one of the great arguments I always have thrown in my face is something like this is too big; it could never be covered up. Somewhere right. there'd be leaks. Well, you know what? There have been leaks. But right. where do they end up? Um, in some small scholarly journal or being smoke, spoken about at some conference, you know, uh, in the hinterlands? If right. the book gets published, how many people really read it? Uh, it's certainly not going to appear in the major media. And I, I think we all have to be very suspect of our media and take everything it reports to us with a grain of salt and balance it against other, you know, non-traditional sources, whether you listen to BBC or National Public Radio or, you know, consult blogs. Um, how can such a big secret be covered up? Well, um, I'm reminded that during World War II, at the height of the Manhattan Project, over 40,000 individuals were working for it. And although we now know that there was a leak, uh, essentially leaks were extremely rare, uh, from the highest levels down to secretaries like my mother's younger sister, who had a secret clearance during the war and was not much more than a teenager typing up documents and passing them on. Uh, but big secrets can be kept, and that should not be a single for a signal for everybody to just become a conspiracist. Uh, but it does mean that everything really has to be questioned. Um, no matter how it seems on the surface. And one last thought, when you do order the book, uh, the edition that you want is the one that is newly revised and updated with new information. And that is the book that is published by Cosimo Press in New York. Um, and it's on Amazon? Uh, you can find it on Amazon or any any book-related website, or your local bookstore will order it for you. Yeah, if they don't have it here, which the, the bookstores in this area do keep a, a very good supply of books on UFO phenomena, if they do not have it, you can order it uh, through through uh, one of the local stores. And we'll, we'll have a link up to it on our site, SpookySouthCoast.com, too. All right, enjoy the show. Thank you. It's a great subject. And thank you. Thank you. And we have another caller standing by. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast. Okay. Okay. There, that I, way. there we go. I, I think uh, that person got abducted. So call back, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. If you have any questions for Peter Robbins about this case or just the UFO phenomena in general. But now we, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the show and before the show on the phone, Peter, and that's that uh, there is a one television show in the U.K. that mm -hmm. is claiming that the entire Rendlesham incident was a hoax. Yes. Uh, certainly uh, this case has been interpreted by many people um, in ways that make it seem a lot more conventional. One of the most common explanations put out for it, which upon investigation or visiting the area or meeting with any of the credible individuals who claim to have seen and experienced what they experienced and saw, this one I find particularly insulting because it credits a lighthouse uh, about 10 or 12 miles from the site of the incidents with being the cause of these alleged UFO landings. Uh, the late Philip Klass, uh, possibly the best-known debunker in uh, UFO studies, 
a man who spent a good part of his life simply uh, putting down any possibility that UFOs were real. Why? Well, because they couldn't be real, therefore they weren't. Therefore, they must be something else or a fabrication or a lie. He actually had the nerve to allege that uh, the guys who were out there, um, you know, were blowing a little weed or a little bit high, and, uh, you know, they saw some police lights and the light of the lighthouse and got confused. Well, not only is that insulting, um, these men were very carefully vetted for this job hours before they were going on uh, a shift, as Larry was that night. Uh, they are questioned and examined, and if they have had so much as a sip of beer or an over-the-counter cold pill that morning, they are not going to be posted uh, on perimeter duty or for any other uh, responsible job, especially if it requires carrying uh, a weapon, uh, no matter what. And for Mr. Class to allege that these guys had been high in the woods when they were specifically trained to work around nuclear ordnance and uh, during a high emergency condition is extremely insulting and absolutely nonsensical. I am curious to know, though, um, if you recall offhand, how this particular television show explains away the incident. Well, what we're going to do, uh, Peter, is we're going to play uh, uh, Colonel Halt's uh, account of what happened, and then I'm going to read to you from the uh, report from the Inside oh, Out television program, which uh, is basically one person saying he played a trick on Halt, and Halt fell oh, for yes, yes, hook, yes. line, and sinker. The, the so. gentleman who drove the car around with the light on who later recanted. But, so uh, so uh, let's, let's just uh, let's hear Colonel Halt's sure. account, and then we'll be right back. Yeah. Yeah, I was assigned to RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge. It's a combination twin base complex. I was assigned as the deputy base commander. On the evening of the 29th of December, we were having the combat support group Christmas party. We just finished dinner when the police lieutenant on duty came in just white as a sheet and said, I've got to talk to you and the base commander right now. And he said, it's back. We looked at each other and looked at him and said, what's back? He said, you know, the UFO, it's back. Three days beforehand, there is a sighting witnessed by many security police. We crossed Bentwaters and out the back gate to the Woodbridge base. We proceeded on into the forest to the area where this supposed landing had taken place several nights earlier. There were three indentations in the forest, equal distance apart. So I had the disaster preparedness NCO start to take readings. While we were in the process of getting readings, which, by the way, came out much higher than background radiation, somebody noticed something in the forest, the light. The light was bright like the sun. It was glowing, but it had a dark center, and it appeared to have something dripping off it like molten metal. The light was about oh, 15 or 20 degrees off to our left, almost directly in front of a farmer's field. As we approached the fence at the edge of the field and were watching this object, it suddenly exploded. Now, there was never a sound the whole time. It burst suddenly into five objects, five white objects, and disappeared. And at that time, we noticed there were several objects in the sky, two to the north and one to the south. They were brightly lit, multicolored, and they were moving very rapidly together as though they were in formation. We watched them for several minutes, and they kept doing this. We turned and watched the object to the south, and suddenly it came toward us at very high speed. It stopped and sent down a beam, like a laser beam. It fell right at our feet. It stayed on for several seconds, and just like a flashlight, it clicked off. 
managed to get a bit of communication through to the command post and asked them to check with Eastern Radar, who had air defense for that sector. They came back and said, no, they weren't painting anything on the screen, but uh, they couldn't explain it wouldn't say a whole lot more. I never saw anything as far as an alien being or anything would be, could be considered human or humanoid or anything of that nature. Although I had a distinct feeling, in fact, I'm firmly convinced that the objects we saw were under some type of intelligent control. All right, so that was Colonel Charles Hall, the base commander at, at the Air Force Base. And, you know, he described it very level-headed, very cool-headed, but that didn't stop a gentleman uh, from attacking him on the Inside Out program. Uh, he was USAF security policeman Kevin Condy. Yes. He told Inside Out exclusively that the lights were the result of a practical joke he played on the gullible airmen. He said, I drove my patrol car out of sight from the gatehouse, turned on the red and blue emergency lights, and pointed white flashlights through the mist into the air. The bottom line is that it was not a UFO. It was a 1979 Plymouth Volari. And I had a 1979 Plymouth Volari. <laughs> and while it is a big airship of its own, I don't think you'd be easily confusing with a UFO. Also, uh, James Easton, a writer specializing in UFO phenomena, recently stumbled across eyewitness reports hidden in a released United States government file. He says each individual account conflicts with another. The most damning of all, as you mentioned before, is the admission that the men knew they were, quote, chasing lighthouse beams from the Orford Nest Lighthouse. One of Halt's men says he touched an alien craft, while another says nothing happened at all. Uh, Halt maintains that a light out at sea was a UFO. Easton says he's identified it, as you mentioned, as light coming from the shipwash buoy. Uh, also, Condi said that, you know, as we spoke about how the U.S. relations with Russia were worsening at that time, Condi has questioned the airman's conduct at that time, saying, if they were out in the forest seeing red and blue pulsing lights, and I'm back here doing this prank with red and blue pulsing lights, what else do they think they're seeing? You have to call into question the judgment of military officers in charge of a front-line base in the Cold War who can't distinguish a UFO from a bank of police car lights. Well, I also question a USAF security member that's screwing around while they're in a similar situation myself. Um, but ufologists, ma- I'm sorry, ufologists maintain that there is a high-level cover-up, and some believe that witness reports reports are false. And we even saw uh, on one website, Peter, that the cover-up went so far as that when the result was over, there was a men in black type situation where these guys were whisked away and told, you know, you didn't see anything. And there was an alien present in the room when that happened. Well, let me start with Mr. Condi. Um, number one, yes, that story made the wire services, I guess, two and a half, three years ago or so, uh, when confronted by uh, his alleged actions by uh, an English writer, Georgina Bruni, who also has written extensively on this case, Condi backed down and admitted that his prank did not happen anywhere within this time frame. So, number one, we kind of wasted some time on a totally (laughs) useless jerk who should have been uh, castigated. How dare he uh, behave like that in an area very close to a highly secured NATO base, he certainly could have created a problem for himself. And if there were other men out there, and again, if there were, it had nothing to do with the incident at hand, uh, he was acting extremely irresponsibly and, again, has recanted in the press that he had anything to do with this incident around the night in question. Now, James Easton, who uh, started to write about this some time after Left at Eastgate came out, uh, has focused in on the case for some years now. 
and underscores what for me is the absolute fact that the men who were involved as witnesses over the course of these three nights uh, were all to some degree or another intimidated in quite a number of cases, and I have first-hand testimony on this from a number of the men involved. Uh, forms were simply put in front of them the day after this incident, and they were told to sign them, period, whatever it said. You know, we saw uh, weird little lights in the night sky rather than a fully articulated machine on the ground. You signed it. And um, the last thing that you discuss, that there seems to be this aspect of the cover-up where uh, men were jerked around with mentally or intimidated or drugged or hypnotized in the presence of a non-human intelligence, um, I can tell you, yes, for a fact, that men were indeed uh, screwed around with mentally. You can call it, you know, something like Manchurian candidating some of these guys. Mm -hmm. uh, they were subjected to scenarios that I believe the intention was to abuse the original memories and make their real memories, which were wild enough, seem absolutely loopy if they ever talked about them because they'd be mixed, hopefully, in the minds of the intelligence operatives who put this together, uh, that it would form a stew and they'd sound absolutely crazy. Um, I have to respectfully say that I feel that the presence of an alien or aliens uh, was intentional on the part of the debriefers, the programmers, but that, in fact, that was an illusion that was calculated to freak these guys out even more. Now, I may be wrong here, but I don't think so. No, that's an excellent point. And I, I think we have another caller here with a sure. question for you, Peter. Yep. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Oh, hi. How you doing, Tim? Good. How are you? It's Steve from Nepo. What's going on? Hey, Steve. How you doing? Hey, do you mind if I change subjects real quick, or is, is that going to interfere with what's going on? Uh, we'd like to keep it on topic. Uh, what, what would you like to tell us about? Uh, I was just going to talk about our investigation today, but if that's not possible... Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we give, give, uh, shoot me an email? We'll set up some time for you next week where we can talk uninterrupted and people can call in and ask you some questions. All right. Hey, I, that sounds like an amazing idea. All right. So uh, just shoot me an email and we'll set something up. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. Bye. All right, Peter. Yes, uh, that's one of our local uh, ghost hunting groups who. Uh, Great. They've been out in the field and uh, they've been having some uh, some interesting results. So. All right. I look forward to hearing about that. All right. And and one thing that we talked about yeah. during the news break. Yeah was, uh, you know, we were kicking around some of the other things that were going on in December of 1980. Yes. And one of the things that I brought up is only a few weeks beforehand, John Lennon was murdered. Yes, on and, the 8th of December, that's correct. And he seems, I mean, not only are these ships flying over England, which, yeah. of course, there's a much more important reason why they were there, but yeah. it, John Lennon is known to have been very involved in, in ufology. Well, it's so interesting that you mention this, um, because there's a connection here for both Larry and I. Uh, Larry was on the base at that time, had just gotten there, uh, was a big Beatles fan like me, but um, for different reasons. I kind of grew up with it, and he, like so many people, adopted them for his own after the fact. Um, I was actually in New York, not far from where it happened at the time, and it was a very sad night. Um, it happened during the week, but that weekend a lot of men left base, and went into London to be part of a huge memorial service. And I have seen with chilling detail, I mean, talk about poignant things that cement bits of history, uh, 
a very, very high-resolution news photo of thousands of people in Trafalgar Square. And Larry had always told me that um, he was there in Trafalgar Square and had climbed onto, like, the first level of the big monument there so he could see out. Mm -hmm. And son of a gun, with a 10-power loop, there he is, right there at the age of 18 or 19, sharp as a tack and you know, part of this huge memorial, but it, it was very, very impacting to him and his friends, as you can imagine. Uh, most of these guys were 19, 20 years old and were into all the great British pop music. And yes, it, it enters very much into um, that aspect of the story. Now, one thing that uh, is, is of interest that's not really you know mentioned in a lot of the the mainstream stuff about about yeah. Larry Warren, but he's actually from close to this area. He's a Brockton, Massachusetts native, is he not? Um, I think he was born in New York, but his folks moved him up there when he was very young, and he lived there for quite a while until I think his parents separated, and then he left Massachusetts. When I met him. Uh, in earnest, when we started on this project in '87, he was living in Connecticut, and his mother was living in a small town outside of Albany, New York, where she still does live. Well, an interesting aspect of, of Brockton, Massachusetts, is it borders on a, a paranormal hotspot, which uh, cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman dubbed the Bridgewater Triangle. Oh, I love it, and he's one of my favorites. God knows. And well, he's actually just confirmed with us today. He's going to be a guest in the future here on Spooky. Oh, Sales wonderful. Place. Lauren's the best. You'll have a terrific show that night. But did, did Larry ever mention any similar incidents in his youth, uh, maybe That's around so. the Hockamock Swamp area? You know, we've never talked about that per se, but as you and your readers will find out when you read Left at East Gate, and as Matt Moniz knows, um, Larry had had experiences, paranormal and UFO-related, as a younger person, including one or two with his mother, who is adamant about the reality of what she experienced and remembered. So he did not come to this as a total non-experiencer, which I must say when I found out about this, I was less than thrilled about it. In the 80s, it was still seen as extremely controversial if you had had a paranormal experience. Our way of looking at it was pretty much like you had been hit by lightning, and the chances were it was not going to happen to you again, when now I think it is fair to say, certainly in UFO studies and other paranormal-related areas to a degree, that if it has happened to you, it has happened to you before and will probably happen to you again. And if it hasn't happened to you, then it probably won't. That incidents tend to concentrate themselves with certain individuals for reasons that we can theorize uh, on and guess about, and, but they do seem to be interested in bloodlines, and uh, these things do follow very uh, documentable patterns. All right, well, we're coming up on our final few minutes. If you have a question for Peter Robbins, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We're going to take a quick one-minute break, then we'll be back to wrap things up here on Spooky South Coast. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. Come on, let's go find that spine. Let's find your mom to take care of that spider. Honey, we're in the living room. We need you to kill a spider. She's calling up my wall. Black and heavy, very small. 
Gotta watch out for those spiders, especially those shadow spiders like we talked about last week with Heidi Hollis. Yeah, they live in Zaha Doom, right? <laughs> now, now, Peter, uh, a couple of times there uh, earlier in the show, we played for our bumpers some Blue Oyster Cult. And I was going to comment on that. And, and why don't you tell people uh, what your connection is with BOC and, you know, your other capacity, yeah. you know, you're an accomplished artist as well. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, my degree is in painting and film history. I am on the faculty of the School of Visual Arts in New York for quite a number of years. But um, my connection to the pop music world is through my late sister, Helen, who performed under the name Helen Wheels and wrote for the Blue Oyster Cult. And I knew those guys way before they were the cult. And you are speaking to the only regular guy you know who has had the honor of singing lead on Don't Fear the Reaper for the cult. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, you knew them back when they were still the Blue Oyster sect. Uh, when they were the soft white underbelly. Wow. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, Good name uh, change. Their former drummer, Albert Bouchard, is still one of my very dearest friends. But, um, uh, yeah, I photographed them a lot in the 70s and 80s, and uh, still I'm in very close touch with Albert and his brother Joe, their world-class bass player. Albert continues to work with a wonderful band called The Brain Surgeons that have a whole bunch of CDs out there that you guys should be familiar with. But, yeah, the Blue Oyster Cult and I go way back through my dear sister. And Blue Oyster Cult will be performing at the Plymouth Memorial Hall yes. next Saturday night. So, you know, check out their website. Uh, we'll put a link up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. <laughs> and, uh, why don't, Peter, you know, you, you don't have to be modest. You can tell everybody the cowbell was your idea. Yeah, right. More cowbell. Uh, yes, talk about entering pop culture deeply. Uh, it was a brilliant device, but, um, boy, you can't beat the Reaper, can you? No. No, but you don't have to fear him. That's the, that's the good part. <laughs> you, know, you do have to fear Godzilla, though. Uh, uh, yes, and with the finest lyric, oh, no, there goes Tokyo. Go, go, Godzilla. It's simple and effective. Oh, they're wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. And I realize that time's about to evaporate, and although I will be out of town for a month or so, let's do this again sometime this summer. Oh, absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. Um, and Matt Moniz, uh, of course, you know, we, we didn't really get into it, but you you two have worked very closely. We have. And, and Matt, of course, just what, you know, we talked about it before, but just remind everybody about some of the anomalies you found in the soil. Out there. Yes. In fact, um, it, it was Matt who um, conducted a very, very detailed analysis and very strict as well. Um, when he gave my co-author and I the results, up until then, you know, I, I function with um, the old uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, deductive reasoning guiding my steps. You begin with the most mundane explanations for the phenomenal, and if you're not able to establish them as that, what you're left with, no matter how extraordinary, may well be it. And for folks who say, well, it was holograms and mind control, well... The site where this thing sat on the third night, based on the analysis with careful control sample analyses, is number one, that uh, in germination tests, the seeds that were germinated in the um, affected sample took much longer to germinate than the control samples. If they germinated and, at all, Peter. Yeah, and mutated to a degree. They did not grow up to be normal, happy plants. The other thing is Matt pointed out that there was something like four times plus the amount of tiny little metallic particles that you'd normally find in soil in the affected area. And when I asked him what I, he thought about that, he very professionally said, what do you think? And I had to say something to the effect of, 
am I off base here? Is there some kind of amazingly powerful electromagnetic field pulling these things into its area? He said that seemed to be the only thing he could figure. And perhaps the most dramatic uh, bit of information was you'd expect to find a certain amount of sand in this farm soil because it's only six miles or so from the coast. And indeed, we found the amount that, you know, one would have expected, except that the sand in the affected soil was, in Matt's terminology, in an interim form of glass. It had melted down to some degree, and it was not something that they were able to reproduce, as I recall, even with all of their uh, appropriate laboratory equipment. So for me, that suggests more than an hallucination or high-tech, you know, uh, mind screwing around or any number of things. It's very physical. And when you have multiple accounts that locate the things sitting on that place and documentation to back it up, as they say in Oklahoma, if it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck, and you cook it and it tastes like a duck, it just might be a duck. Exactly. Well, we're coming up upon the end of our discussion yeah. here, Peter Robin. Sadly, uh, we'd love to go all night because there's so much fascinating uh, material uh, revolving around this case. So we'll definitely have to you know, revisit this. Uh, if we'll, you come up with uh, Bud this summer, we'd love to have you guys up in the studio. Oh, oh that would be That would be great, yeah. And if not, you will have my voice by a strong signal, that's for sure, one or the other. <laughs> hey, it's, it's just as good. <laughs> and uh, and one thing we want to give you a chance just to tell everybody again yeah. where they can get Left at Eastgate. Well, thanks. Uh, it is Left at Eastgate with my co-author's name first. That's Larry Warren. With a long subtitle, the main thing you have to remember is you'll see two editions on sale. The one you want is the one published by Cosimo, C-O-S-I-M-O Books, out of New York City, and that is the one with all of the updates in it. Uh, you can always contact me through uh, Weird South Coast, and I know that uh, Tim, Matt, and Matt will forward me any um, information or any questions, and I'll try to keep the answers coming. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure, and I look forward to being back on the show uh, when it gets a little warmer out. All right, the pleasure and the honor is all ours. Hey, both ways, brother. All right, thank you very much, Peter. (laughs) Okay. And uh, now uh, we're just moments away from the Easter holiday, so uh, we want to let everybody know about a little interesting new item we're going to be adding to our message board starting tomorrow, tonight. Resurrected, just like uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, so will be the new feature we're going to call... Costas Cryptozoology here. We're going to match Creature Corner, whatever we call it. If you go to the Costas Crypt on the Spooky South Coast message board, we're going to have uh, a, a different creature every once in a while to focus on. And we're going to start tomorrow with the Easter Bunny. Now, we did want to tell you about the Easter Bunny tonight, but we're running out of time. So what I'm going to do is make Matt stay up a little bit later, and, and one of us will put it up on the website. So it'll be ready for you to find tomorrow along with your eggs. Speaking of Easter eggs... The Easter egg hunt is on on the Paranormal Message Boards. So if you go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the latest news section of the message board, you can find out how you can participate in tomorrow's Easter egg hunt. So that about wraps it up for us tonight on an extremely interesting evening. Too bad it had to end so soon. So for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, and myself, Tim Weisberg, we invite you all to stay spooktacular, everybody. See you next week. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems.
or at least until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.